Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. We are back for another episode. This is what I'm calling a bonus episode of Risking Enchantment because it is not our regular broadcasting. It is a recording of a talk that I gave over just this past summer at the Youth 2000 Summer Festival in Ireland. I was very kindly asked to give a talk on Catholic womanhood for the female attendees. This is a point in the Youth 2000 Summer Festival where the attendees are split up for a manhood and a womanhood talk. And after the talk, a number of the attendees asked if it would be possible for me to post a recording of it. I did record it uh, just on the off chance that it would be useful. And it seems that at least some people have been kind enough to say that it would be uh, nice to be able to hear this recording. So I thought I would share it here. It's not quite my usual subject matter, uh, but I hope it will be interesting enough to all of my regular listeners as well. Uh, But if not, Risking Enchantment is coming back to its regular posting very shortly, so you can look forward to a regular episode of Risking Enchantment very soon. Uh, In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this recording and I hope the audio quality is okay. It was not professionally recorded. Like I said, I wasn't totally expecting to share this. I just recorded it as a backup, but I I think hopefully it should be fine for listeners. Also worth noting, throughout the talk I am referencing uh, the slides that I had prepared in my presentation. I have posted a blog with where I've put all of the slides along with the timestamps as to when they're being spoken about and that will be linked in the show notes for this episode. At some point I also hope to be able to uh, post a video where they will be the slides and the audio will be combined but that won't be just yet. So in the meantime this is a good stopgap so that you can see what I'm talking about. And thanks very much for listening. A special thank you to everyone who attended the talk and asked to hear this back or be able to share it with others. So I really appreciate all of your kind words and I will be back again soon. Thank you everyone for coming to listen. This is a very full room and I didn't expect it. So thank you very much. When I was asked to give this talk, Lena asked me and I thought, wow, I feel really unqualified. Uh, when I think of women's talks, I think of great vocational stories or motherhood or marriage or, or all of those things. And I don't have any of those experiences. Uh, I am single, I've never particularly felt a called religious life. And I was like, what do I have to say about womanhood? Um, and I prayed about it and I thought about it. I thought maybe that's what I will talk about. Womanhood outside of any other context, just what it means to be a woman. Um, just women. <laughs> and I feel like so much of what we say about women is about these contexts that we're in. It's about our relationality, it's about our identity as daughters, as wives, as girlfriends, as friends our beautiful ability to relate to each other, to explore emotions and to share things with other people. And it's also, the other thing we talk a lot about is our creative expression, what we wear, how we um, make beautiful spaces for people to be in, all of the ways that we express beauty. 
Um, and anyone who knows my podcast knows that's something I feel very strongly about. But um, those are amazing things. And there's a lot of great talkers who will do amazing talks on this. They might have even already been at um, workshops on this on this weekend. Um, that's not what I want to talk about. I want to take womanhood back to its absolute essentials, away from your womanhood in relation to anything that you do in this world, anything that you have or do or any relationships that you have, your context in a family. I want to talk about what it means to be a woman before God. Because God created you a woman. It's, ed it's etched into your very being. It's etched into every way that you experience the world. And I'm not just talking about the things that lead to mind, periods and pregnancies. It's etched into every way that your hormones cycle through the day. It's in the very makeup of how your skeleton is made to stand on the earth. It's in every strand of your DNA. It, come, it is, is embodied in your whole being. Uh, St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, who I'm going to be talking about a lot in this talk, so keep her name in mind. She would say that there's a feminine quality to your souls. God created you as an expression of his immense goodness and love. And when he thought of how he wanted to express this through you, he thought of it in a uniquely feminine way. It is part of your very essence. He made you a woman before the foundation of the world, before there was anything that could tell you how to be a woman, anything that might indicate like what you wear or what jobs you might have, you're a woman before all of those things. And so if we want to say something about womanhood, we have to go deeper. Um, I, I guess this is me receiving my degree in womanhood, which qualifies me to give this talk. <laughs> 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 it turns out I am qualified. Um, but Teresa Benedict of the Cross has this amazing quote. She has a lot of quotes, and I'm bringing up a lot of them in this talk. Uh, brace yourselves. But she says, the world doesn't need what women have. The world needs what women are. And she also says, um, first become a person. And she says this in the context of, of praising the unique calling of women to motherhood. But she says, before a woman can become a wife and a mother in a positive way, she must first mature in her own self-possession. Although a woman longs to love and receive love, she must also become strong enough to be a true gift to another. And I want to explore what that sense of self-possession, that, um, that sense of self as a woman means for us as Catholic women. And it's important because the world has a lot of things to say about what it means to be a woman and how to be a woman. It tells us what we, how we should dress, how we should act, what careers we should have. It even goes as far as saying what kinds of shapes of bodies we should have to fit trends. Um, and these kinds of expectations can even come from well-meaning uh, religious and Catholic circles as well, which have something important to say, but I, I just want to clarify something on it. It can, I feel like sometimes when you're in Catholic spaces, there can be a lot of expectations of what your life ought to look like. That you should be married by a certain age, that you should have so many kids at a certain amount of time. Um, and it can become overwhelming to try and figure out what it means to be a woman. And I want to keep bringing it back to this first become a person. Um, because it's easy to slip into thinking of only the externalities when we think of our womanhood. Um, it's not anything that you can 
survive or a checklist of things that you have to achieve. It's not something that you have to do, it's who you are. Um, and so your life, your faith, and your femininity, which are all tied together, they're not a branding exercise. We all share so much of our lives online, and I think it can, as much as I like following a beautiful Catholic Instagram as much as anyone else, it can begin to feel like when our lives don't look a certain way, then we're not living up to our Catholic potential. And I just want to make sure that everyone knows that that's not true, that you don't, that there are many good things that we see that trends among Catholic girls that can be good and can be wonderful. They're not the same thing as your faith. Um, oh yeah. I was trying to, <laughs> I don't know how many people have actually seen this movie. I was like, I was like, this sounds very familiar. Oh, I'm quoting the Grinch, but instead of Christmas, I'm saying womanhood. So I'm glad some people have seen that movie. This may be bad. Um, but I've got a few things up here. I think these are some of the things that we tend to think of for like what a Catholic woman's life looks like. And if you think, if you think I'm coming for anyone here, I want you to know that every single item on this is something that I own. Uh, in fact, I'm wearing this necklace right now. <laughs> um, they're great. They're beautiful. I love my dresses. I love my necklaces. I love my calligraphy Bible uh, quotes. But they are not the same thing as my faith. They might be expressions of it. They might be expressions of my femininity. They might be expressions of how I believe and what gives, gives me inspiration to turn to God. But they're, they're not the same thing as my faith. I was a Catholic woman before I owned any of these things. And I will be a Catholic woman long after I own any of these things. Um, they're not, it is not a part, it's not a part of our faith to have to own things. You don't need anything to be a woman of God. Um, and to quote the great philosopher, um, Dr. Taylor Allison Smith, <laughs> no amount of vintage dresses will give you dignity. <laughs> Obviously, I'm joking, um, but my point is, is that your dignity comes from God. And while your vintage dresses, which Taylor Swift owns a lot of, it can be an expression of your womanly dignity, your di the dignity itself comes from God and not from these things. I think this, the reason why I wanted to say this is because this can be a little bit innocuous. It can be easy to think like, oh, well, that's fine. I know that my dresses aren't my faith. That's obvious. But it goes beyond that because I think we can fall into the trap of thinking that and then we can fall into the trap of looking at other ways that our lives look like beyond material things and look at the conditions and the path that we're taking and start saying, does this match up with what everyone has told me my Catholic life would look like? And I just want to make sure that we don't fall into that trap. The church has beautiful, wonderful, important things to say about the role of women and their maternal and motherly vocation, whether that's in religious vocation or in family life. Um, and it's really important that the church says those things because our world today has so little time for a lot of it and so little interest in it. And it's wonderful to proclaim those things. But at the same time, I worry that we can sometimes think that it always looks the same. Or maybe that there's one or two boxes that like, oh, if I have a religious vocation, it looks like this. And if I want to be a mother, it looks like this. Um, and I just want to make sure that we are open to God calling us to live our womanly life, our womanly vocation, 
in a multitude of ways. Um, I added this today, it was something that I was reminded of. I think a lot about this. This is a picture of uh, Elizabeth. And it says about her life that with her and Zechariah, both of them were righteous in the sight of the Lord, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. They were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And when Elizabeth finds out that she's pregnant with John the Baptist, she says, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown his favour and taken away my disgrace among the people. And I've always found it very moving because there's definitely a sense in which Elizabeth is longing for a child because she wants to be a mother. But there's also a sense here in which she feels like the community is looking at her and saying that her condition is a judgment from God. And that's not true. She lived blamelessly in front of the Lord. Her life just looked a little bit different. And in fact, it ended up being probably a bigger adventure than most people would have ever expected. She was the mother of John the Baptist. That's an incredible vocation. So there's not one way to be a Catholic woman. There's not even one way to be a Catholic wife and mother. Yes, you're not required to be a 1950s housewife or a medieval peasant or whatever people on the internet have decided Catholic woman looks like. Um, and I want to let you guys know that a message went out that said that anyone giving a woman's talk in the next 12 months is legally obliged to reference the Barbie movie. And so this is my Barbie reference. Um, there is no stereotypical Barbie. You are not being asked to get back in the box. <laughs> because the thing that we find in faith is not that, our, that we become more the same or that our lives become more the same, but actually when we follow God, our lives become more unexpected. God doesn't tend to follow social conventions. He usually stretches out our expectations. And so... I thought I would take the example of the women that I read and pulled quotes from for this talk, and I thought I'd do a little bit of a case study on them. I'll go through them pretty quickly, don't worry. But um, these are the four women, and I picked them because they're all incredible Catholic women. They're all from the 20th century. Sometimes I feel like it's amazing to get inspiration from the saints, but when they're so far in the past, you can feel like um, how could their lives possibly relate to mine? My life looks nothing like a nun in Renaissance Florence, or whatever. Um, and so I wanted to pick some women that you could see the faces of in photographs. And they all had incredibly profound faith-filled lives, and they all lived lives that were pretty unexpected. So I'll start with, since I've quoted her so much, I'll start with St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, who was also known as Edith Stein, that was her birth name. And her feast day was actually on Wednesday, so I think she's kind of a patron saint of this talk. She was born into an Orthodox Jewish family in Poland, and, but by the time she was a teenager, she considered herself an atheist, which I think is a trajectory a lot of us can um, recognize. But she had a brilliant mind, and she went into academia, and she was so fiercely intelligent that she worked to and almost became one of the first ever female professors um, in her area. And when they uh, ran out of reasons why she shouldn't do it because she was a woman, they decided she shouldn't do it because she was a Jew. So it just goes to show you that people always find reasons to tell you you shouldn't do things. <laughs> um, but in 1921, she read the autobiography of St. Teresa of Avila, and it totally changed her life. She quickly became a Catholic, and she, uh, after that, became a Carmelite nun, and she continued to write and teach, and she became one of the most important thinkers that we have in the church. 
But she was also caught in the middle of World War II, and the Nazis were persecuting many people, but her because of her Jewish heritage. And not only was she an amazing thinker, but she was an incredibly brave woman and a virtuous woman, and so much so that she believed that she would not survive the war and she started preparing for her life in the concentration camps. She would voluntarily go hungry and cold so that she would be ready. In the end, she was arrested by the Gestapo. They brought her to Auschwitz where she was gassed. Um, and it's, she's now patron saint of Europe and she's just an amazing testament to how you can have an intellectual life, but it has to be bolstered by this incredible and profound virtue and faith. And the next person we have is um, Flannery O'Connor. She's one of our greatest uh, 20th century Catholic novelists and writers. Um, if you can say that someone who's been dead for 60 years and that you've never met is your best friend, I think she might be mine. <laughs> I don't know if that's a bit sad to say, but she's amazing. She was born in the uh, American South in Savannah, Georgia in 1925. She was raised a Catholic and carried her profound faith throughout her life. She went, uh, she moved north and joined the sort of elite writerly circles, very kind of fashionable and uh, interesting uh, literary lives. But she, at the age of 27, she was diagnosed with lupus, which had killed her father. So she had to retreat from this exciting life and she moved back to the American South onto a farm with her mother and spent the remaining 12 years of her life raising peacocks, which I don't think was part of her plan. <laughs> I don't think it's anyone's plan to raise peacocks for their life. But instead of feeling like she had been cheated out of something, she used that time and even that the limitations of her illness to focus on writing. She wrote two novels and over two dozen short stories which profoundly changed literature. But more than that, she was incredibly generous. She wrote a lot of letters. Um, she was a mentor for a lot of writers and she was a spiritual confidant for a lot of people. She really thought about her fate. She was also not at all what you think of as like a sweet little at the time, spinster, American lady. Um, she was wickedly funny. She was unbelievably funny and sharp. And her stories were dark and kind of grotesque and a little bit scary. And what she did was she used them to show the brokenness of humanity from which God offers us redemption. She has an incredible ability to portray the darkness of humanity. And that's actually part of how she draws people to God. It's an incredible skill. Now, some people might have heard of Flannery O'Connor. I doubt almost anyone in this room has heard of Madeleine Del... Oh, have I missed one? Where is she gone? Oh. She's still there? No? She's gone? Well, she's going to have to just be described. And you could only describe her. <clears throat> um, Madeleine Del Brel, she grew up in a fashionable 20th century Paris. And she lived what I can only describe as the cliched French dream. As a teenager, she cut her hair short, designed her own clothes, wrote, wrote atheist manifestos, and studied philosophy. And I presume smoked a lot of cigarettes. <laughs> but she, and she went to a lot of parties and had a lot of fun. But when she was 20, her tall, dark, and handsome fiance decided, actually, I'm gonna join the Dominicans. And she, <laughs> and she had to contend with the idea that maybe faith was something that was gonna impact on her life. And she converted to Catholicism and she gave up all of the fashionable parts of her life and founded a home of hospitality for people in the suburbs of, of Paris in a largely communist area that was very hostile to the idea of God. 
and she worked for people, she gave them homes, she fought for um, social justice and workers' rights where they were really needed, where people were really downtrodden, and for people who never expected to be offered a chance to encounter God, she, she worked for her whole life for that. And then the last one, Exactly what you think of when you think mystic. I think she probably looks a little bit more like Edna Mode from The Incredibles. <laughs> but she, but she was. She was a mystic. She had visions, um, and she was a pretty zany person. She was an eccentric in a lot of ways, and uh, she played a lot of pranks. She went to mass every day, and yet she had. Uh, she hated what she called common sense Christians. Um, she even fell in love with a Russian spy who broke her heart. Um, but she had some pretty relatable experiences too. Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe someone here has fallen in love with a Russian spy. Um, but she, she was an oddball as a teenager. She had poor health. Her friends didn't understand her. Her family didn't understand her. Um, this probably wasn't helped by her getting visions. But she became one of our most profound spiritual writers as well as becoming a spiritual director and specifically a counsellor. Um, doctors would send people with severe emotional wounds to her and she would, as one of them quoted, love them back to health. She had a profound gift for that. So all of these women had very different lives, with different careers and interests. They were academics, they were social workers, they were novelists, they were counsellors. And for each of them, God took their lives in a direction Nobody, I think, would have expected. I don't think it's what they would have chosen for themselves, but he knew what he was doing. He knew the good that he wanted to work through their lives, and he is still working good through their lives. I hope, I mean, they've had an impact on me. I hope they will have an impact on you. But they, their lives weren't what they expected or what anyone expected. A lot of them went from quite prestigious looking lives to quite humble lives. And so I think the world might even say they were unsuccessful or that they had gone gone down in the world in some way. And even for Catholics, I don't think they follow the mold of what you expect when you think of a Catholic woman. Um, and this is what I want to highlight to you. It's, it's, the, it's the vastness, it's the unknowability. This is, this is the piles and piles of female saints in, in heaven. There is an unknowability of, your, of the plan for your life. You, you can't expect it to look one way. Um, we have a God who makes every snowflake and every fingerprint unique. Don't spend your life wondering why your life doesn't look like someone else's. Um, it's good that we have longings in our hearts. It's good that we desire things and we ask God for them. It's good to have goals that we want to pursue. These are incredibly important things, but we need to be able to ask God for them and then to have the humility to have him answer those prayers in ways that we don't expect. It's not a vending machine where you insert prayers and good works and at the bottom pops out the life that you want and expect. He wants so much more. His, his imagination is so much bigger than ours. Um, I was thinking that, I find myself sometimes thinking that it can feel like he has a template for most of us that is all the same. And that here and there he crafts some extraordinary lives like the ones that we just discussed. That's not true. He has an extraordinary path for everyone. For every single person who's ever existed, he has had a, an important path for them. And so, what does this mean for us as women? What does, 
What do we have to take on to, un to realize this for ourselves? And I think, to me, it comes back to, in order to be the, the woman that God wants us to be, it's important that we become the person that God wants us to be. Remember that first quote, first become a person? That's not a vague statement of like, I don't know, just become born. <laughs> um, it means to be fully integrated, to be fully alive, to fully realize what God wants for us. And that starts with becoming holy. When we're holy, we're realizing God's vision for ourselves. And that vision he has for us will be a womanly vision for us because he created us as a woman from the very beginning. We don't have to worry so much about the externalities because if we're being holy, we are being exactly who God wants us to be. Um, and that starts with prayer, it starts with the sacraments, it starts with making friends with people who want what's truly best for us. And it starts with a conscious effort to start now. Um, holiness is not something you acquire at the end of your life. It's not something that you should wait until the conditions are more favorable. Um, there is no situation in your life which will make you holy. Getting married won't make you holy. Having kids won't make you holy. Uh, for our sisters here, joining a convent won't make you holy. What I mean is nothing can force holiness on you. There's not a situation that you can put yourself in that will automatically make you holy. It starts with you resolving to begin now. And what does that look like? I think a lot of us think instantly that holiness is just following a set of rules. And that's not a terrible thing to begin with. I think when we're beginning, we all need a framework of how to begin and what to do. Um, when we're starting out, it's really good to get familiar with the rules. And, and we should have people that we, can, we trust to guide us and show us the way and give us some framework for how we're meant to proceed. But I think it can be easy to just stop there. I think, when I, especially when I think of people pleasers, and I think that describes a lot of women, we can be so focused on making sure we're staying within the lines and doing everything right and making sure that we're following all of the rules that we never actually get away from that. Um, I debated whether I should put this, <laughs> this quote in this talk uh, because it comes from a slightly controversial TV show, uh, which I've not seen. So <laughs> I really am not... I, I, I wondered whether I should put it in because it would look like I'm recommending it. And I actually have, I don't have opinions, I don't know. But what I do know is that a lot of people I knew really resonated with the following quote. And it didn't matter whether they were Catholic or Christian or anything. From all kinds of backgrounds, I knew women who resonated with this quote from Fleabag. Um, actually, the scene that this is from is quite controversial, I know that much. Um, but bear with me, and please don't write me complaining about this. But she says in the scene, I want someone to tell me what to wear every morning. I want someone to tell me what to eat, what to like, what to hate, what to rage about, what to listen to, what band to like, what to buy tickets for, what, joke, what to joke about, what not to joke about. I want someone to tell me what to believe in, who to vote for, and who to love, and how to tell them. I think I just want someone to tell me how to live my life, Father, because so far I think I've been getting it wrong. Um, I don't know whether anyone re relates to that quote, but I certainly do. Um, and the problem is that that can, that sort of, it comes from a good place and a bad place. It comes from a desire to find happiness, to do the right thing, to do, to make sure that we're living correctly. It also comes from a place of fear, to afraid of getting things wrong. Um, and there's good news and bad news with this, which is that 
The bad news first, there is no list. There's no comprehensive list that will tell you exactly what to do in every moment of your life. I'm sure some people here will probably think that the church probably has enough rules going on. Uh, <laughs> but it, when we start to live out our lives, we find that there's a huge range of moments in our life where it's up to our judgment. And there will never be anything that can tell us definitively what's right and what's wrong and what, what we should do. Because life is full of nuance, it's full of context, it's full of our own baggage, it's full of our own intentions. Um, it's not a very, it's not, it's not like a bumper sticker that you can get. Life is full of nuance. Um, but it's true, and part of our faith is growing maturing enough to understand that and live in those uncomfortable spaces. There is no Vatican edict that will tell you who to date, or what length your skirt should be, or how much makeup you should wear. And there are plenty of people who will try to give you that list. But what we're actually called to is something far more and far greater. We're called to actually have a relationship with God and to know him well enough to know how he wants us to be, how he wants us to act, to, to have that come from a place of knowledge of him. And um, I think that's maybe where I get onto the good news, which is that when we do that, it's incredibly freeing. When we actually have a sense of clarity about our intentions, about our conscience, about our motivations, when we integrate this into ourselves, we have a sense of freedom. We don't have this paralyzing fear that we're accidentally going to step outside the rules. We can have confidence in the choices that we make. I think about this a lot when I'm driving around Dublin. Um, I don't do that much driving, and there's about three routes that I know, the rest I'm, I need my sat nav to shout at me the entire way. Turn left now. <laughs> Where do I go? Um, and, you know, the sat nav gets me there. It shouts me the whole way there, and I get there, and that's fine. But when I sit in the car with my parents who lived in Dublin for 20 years, long before sat nav ever existed, and they know every street, and they know every way to go to avoid traffic, and they know how to get to where they want to go without having to consult something else. They have a sense of where they're going, they have a sense of the landscape, and they have a sense of what they're, where, where they, they're trying to get to. And that's what I think about the spiritual life. When we, have a, when we grow and mature, we can have a sense of, that sense of knowing what we're doing. And it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Um, and it helps us step away from the sin and brokenness that we can be feeling. Um, I want to talk a little bit about sin and brokenness. Um, I just want to caveat it first because what I want to talk about is the sin that we experience in the, in the small everyday moments in our lives. And I want to make sure that I'm not at all dismissing the fact that there will be many people in this room who are struggling with profound brokenness and a really heavy burden of brokenness and sin. Um, and I'm not trying to say that that doesn't exist for anyone here at all. It's just not what I'm talking about today. I really hope for anyone who's experiencing that, that you will find the love and support and grace that you need, hopefully even in this community here. But like I said, I want to talk about the small moments, the moments that are less kind of dramatic to talk about. Um, because um, it can be easy to feel when we're struggling with big sin that like, when I've got this big thing that I have to deal with, surely the smaller stuff is less important so I don't have to worry about it. Or, what well, is probably more pernicious, and I, I find from a lot of people, both in, in Catholic and in secular circles, which is that feeling of, 
I don't do anything that bad. And that's such a small way to view your life. Do you do anything that good either? Um, life is not about, you know, saying, well, I didn't, I, I, I didn't manage to do anything that bad. It's, it's a very limiting way that we can have. And what I want to talk about is virtue. That virtue is a positive, important force. It is a vital, life-giving force. It's not just an absence of doing bad things. I think we can think of holiness at, at, like that a lot. I think we can say, um, well, virtue is the fact that I don't cheat, or I don't swear, or I don't steal. Um, but virtue is its own positive force. It sets the world on fire. And we come to Flannery O'Connor. This is one of my favorite quotes of hers. It's had a profound impact on my life. She says, I'm not a mystic, and I do not lead a holy life. Um, she's being modest there. <laughs> not that I can claim any interesting or pleasurable sins. My sense of the devil is strong. But I know all about the garden variety, pride, gluttony, envy, and sloth. And what is more to the point, my virtues are as timid as my vices. And that phrase has really stuck with me. What does it mean to be timid in your virtues? And what does it mean to be bold in them? What does it mean to be courageous in them? What does it look like to live out courage and wisdom and hope and charity? Um, our, and what, what does this timidity mean? To me, the timidity is the exchanging of these true virtues for more worldly virtues, like likability and respectability and even how much we fit in. We have to consider being virtuous in those small moments where it's so much easier to let it pass by because no one will notice if we don't. If we don't. Are we courageous enough to call out people when they're gossiping? Are we willing to be excluded because we won't go along with things that we know are wrong? And when I say we need to think about these small moments. I also want to highlight, I don't want people to fall into a sense of paranoia that you have to scrupulously go over every second, am I doing the right thing now? Am I doing the right thing now? I do want you to breathe virtue into every moment of your life, but I don't want you to get fixated on this kind of perfectionism. And I think it's something that I see in a lot of women, myself included, this perfectionism, which ultimately confounds us because it leads to two things. It either leads us being burned out because we're stressing so much about everything, or it leads us to be discouraged and to say, well, I failed 700 times before, why would I think I could succeed on the 701st time? Um, and that's neither of those things is what God intends for us. Um, God loves us so deeply that he wants us to be able to rest in him. Um, I think about Martha busy and Mary resting at his feet. Um, when he wants us to be able to rest and not panic all the time, but at the same time he wants us to live up to our potential. When we love people, we know this in our own lives, when we love people we know that they're not living up to their best version of themselves. We want them to be better. And it's important to remember that this kind of perfectionism is a kind of self-reliance. And we should avoid that because what, because what we're actually being asked to do is to rest in God, to make sure that we are calling to Him for help, not only in the big catastrophes in life, but in the small moments. That what He's asking us to do is supernatural and not 
Um, not, not the expectations that we would ever set for ourselves because they're so unrealistic. And they are unrealistic until we start asking God to help us through them. We should have a sense of humor as well about ourselves, about our ability to mess it up yet again. And then we need to go and confess it to God. I hope everyone here has been to confession. I really encourage it. I would encourage you to make it a habit. But I, I just think that we need to make sure that we pick ourselves up and get back to the business of trying. Because that's what God is asking us to do. And it requires doing this over and over again in small ways. I think a lot about when I had to get knee surgery a couple of years ago. And I was, the worst bit was being sent to physio afterwards. Because it was, not because it was hard, because it was so boring. <laughs> it was like, stretch your knee out. Hold for 10 seconds, 20 times, three sets, twice a day. I honestly would have been, I'd rather they told me to climb a mountain because there was just no gratification. There's no sense that you've achieved anything at all. But I stuck at it as best I can, much like sin in my life. I was not perfect with my physio exercises either, but I did it well enough to get back walking. And my, my determination to stick at that was what allowed me to do many other things in my life. It impacted everything that I do that is impacted, that, like that ability to stand and walk is obviously integrated into every single part of my life. And so that's the same with virtue. When we do those little things, it prepares us to do much greater things. And we can't wait until we're at these big heroic moments. I feel like we all want, we want the glorious heroic end of the movie battle where we show ourselves to, uh, worthy of the challenge and we rise to the moment. But it begins with those small moments and we don't get to, to, to skip ahead to those challenges. So this is Madeleine Delbrell, she says, we are waiting for our passion but it does not come. In its place there come small patiences. Patience is those small pieces of the passion whose job it is to kill us gently for your glory, to kill us without our getting the glory. From dawn they come to greet us, are not nerves either too much on edge or too numb. It is our disgust with our daily ration of life and our, the neurotic desire for all that is not ours. This is the way our patience has come in serried ranks or single file, and they always were to remind us of the fact that they are the martyrdom for which we are preparing, and scornfully we let them pass by. We shouldn't disdain doing the right thing because we think it's too small to matter. Because actually, every moment that we choose to do the right thing is of cosmic importance. It's, what, it's the battle for good and evil in our souls. And as women, this is actually our calling to battle evil. Saint Teresa the Benedict of the Cross says, um, a promise of redemption is present inasmuch as the woman is charged with the battle against evil. And what she's referring to here is the prophecy in the, in the Garden of Eden, when God says to the serpent, I will set enmity between you and the woman, your, your offspring and hers. Her descendants will tread on your head, and yours will lie waiting for their heel. Um, in some ways, we believe this to have been fulfilled in Our Lady. Our Lady was the one who brought, brought Jesus to, into our world and hence defeated the plans of Satan. But this is a prophecy, in as much as we are all called to be Our Lady, um, we are all called to follow in her footsteps and be as much as we can like her. And that this includes battling evil. Um, and we, are, we can all be like Our Lady. This is all part of our path. And if you have um, ever sat in prayer and wondered, well, what is Our Lady like and how can I be like her? There's a reason 
why in the Gospels we don't get a clear vision of her personality, which I'm sure she had. Um, but we are, we are let, she's left as kind of a mystery to us, and that is because God loves us so much, he wants us to give us the space to be the women that we are while following in her footsteps. Carol Hauslander says, the one thing that she, Our Lady, did and does is the one thing that we all have to do, namely, to bear Christ into the world. Christ must be born from every soul, formed in every life. If we had a picture of Our Lady's personality, we might be dazzled into thinking that one sort of person could form Christ in himself, and we should miss the meaning of our own being. God so highly values the distinctiveness of the womanhood that he has given each and every person in this room, our unrepeatability, our unique beauty, our personalities. He has called us to follow in the footsteps of Our Lady, but he has given us the space of the universe to fill that with our own distinctive mark. And when we think of what she achieved, what we're all called to achieve, she was a sinful woman who bore Jesus into her heart, but her yes was the concrete moment which made redemption possible, which formed civilization, which changed history, which raised up cathedrals and wrote poetry and all of these amazing things. Her yes was the moment that allowed all of those things to happen. And we can bear that out in our own lives as well. Those incredible history-changing, monumental, God-fearing paths that we can follow. Because, as Carol Hausander also says, our crowning joy is that she did this as a lay person and through the ordinary daily life that we all live, through natural love made supernatural. And this is my closing statement. That's what I hope for all of you, that you will find the virtue to be able to say yes and to lead an extraordinary, unexpected, unique and unrepeatable life. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at Seeking Watson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.